All right, so just uh, before I begin, I would like to state for the record that today is October 23rd, 2020, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with John Mutz, who is in Indianapolis, Indiana as well. Is that correct? Uh, I, I, I confirm what you just said. Uh -huh. And we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just... Yeah. Just starting off, uh, I'll ask a few basic questions about your background. Uh, when and where were you born? I was born uh, November 5th, 1935, which makes me 84 at, at, at this moment. <clears throat> I was born here in Indianapolis in the Methodist Hospital. Okay. And uh, what were your parents' names? Uh, my father's name was John L. Mutz. Uh, the L stood for Lowry, L-O-U-G-H-E-R-Y, and uh, my mother's name was <coughs> Mary Helen Massey, M-A-S-S-I-E. Excellent, okay. <coughs> and how long had your family been in Indiana? Uh, well... The Butzes first came to Edinburgh, Indiana, uh, uh, I think around 1890. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, family's been here for a while then. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, what were your parents' occupations? Well, uh, my, my mother was a school teacher. Uh, she taught, the, I think it's the third and fourth grade. Uh, and my father was a certified public accountant. Uh, at one time, the vice president and treasurer of the Barbasol Shaving Cream co Company. Oh, okay. Here in, in Indianapolis. Uh, later, uh, he became the uh, chief financial officer for Warren Atkinson, uh, who was an extremely well-known uh land developer uh, in Indianapolis, most famous for his developments uh, around the reservoirs, which were uh, developed by the Indianapolis Water Company at the time to provide potable drinking water for the, the city. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, do you have any siblings? I have no siblings. I'm an only child. Okay. So how would you describe your childhood growing up? Well, my childhood growing up took place on the north side of Indianapolis. Uh, I uh, largely lived in two locations. Uh, and during my early school years, I attended public school 84 at uh, 57th and Central in, in Indianapolis. Um, I, I lived at 57 25 Winthrop until I was in the third grade. And then my folks bought a new house uh, on North Meridian Street at 57th and Meridian. People today know it as a what looks like a large farmhouse. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it was the original farmhouse in, in the area that was later developed and carved up into lots. Mm. Uh, it's across the street from the Meridian Restaurant, which is a well-known landmark on the north side of Indianapolis. Oh, okay. That's neat. 
Uh, who were the most influential people in your childhood? Well, without doubt, uh, my parents to begin with. Right. I, I would have to say that both of them were extremely well read. Uh, they were voracious readers. Uh, my mother, particularly on fiction, and my father on history. Uh, our dinner table conversations were, uh, in my mind, educational. Uh, oh, okay. My, my father had a, a rule that at 6 p.m., that was dinner time in the Mutz household, and everybody was expected to be there, even though everybody was just three of us. Right. And uh, the dinner table conversations uh, uh, largely revolved around the things that my mother and father had read during the, the week. And uh, uh, we discussed everything from religion uh, to uh, the history, uh, uh, culture, race relations, you, you, you name it. Uh, it may be one of the most important learning periods in my life. I'm sure I learned more at the dinner table than I did at public school 84. Yeah. Uh, that's the background of which I, I grew up. Now, there were other people who became very important. Uh, I, I would say at public school 84, I would mention one teacher, two teachers in particular, uh, one was Esther Coffing, C-O-F-F-I-N-G, who was my teacher in the fourth grade. And uh, she uh, uh, was, a, I think, the classic example of a teacher at that time. She was well-educated, articulate. She had the most beautiful handwriting you have ever seen. And uh, <coughs> she was a rigorous teacher. It was not unusual for her to say on my papers, uh, Johnny, that's what they called me back then, mm -hmm. J-O-H-N-N-Y, Johnny, you can do better. She said that over and over again. Uh, later on, I had a chance to visit with her when she was in her late 90s, living in a teacher's retirement facility in Franklin, Indiana. And uh, I, I told her the story about what she wrote on my papers. And she said, well... Johnny, now you have. And I, I guess it was a very emotional moment for me. I know it was an emotional moment for me. Sure, yeah. Uh, I had another teacher at public school, 84, named Dorothea Galley, G-A-L-L-E-Y. Uh, she uh, taught gym and uh, a variety of other things in, in, on the curriculum for the 7th and 8th grade. Uh Miss Galley recognized uh, uh, my emotional desire to succeed at athletics, and she also realized my limitations. And uh, uh, back in those days, of course, everybody wanted to be a basketball player, a basketball star, if you will. And my father had been when he was at Edinburgh High School. In fact, he was the leading scorer on the team largely because in those days they had a designated foul shot shooter. Mm, okay. he, he got all the team's foul shots, and uh, as a result, he was the leading scorer. 
but that's beside the point. What I'd say is that Miss Gallic talked to me one day when I was in the seventh grade, and she said, Johnny, you're not very big. Uh, you have better than average athletic ability, but you may not be as good as you'd like to be. And I suggest you buy a tennis racket. Huh. And uh, I already owned a tennis racket, but I hadn't played with it much. I did start playing tennis partly in response to her suggestion. And uh, I uh, uh, played at the Riviera Club, which was walking distance from our home, and uh, uh, never took any lessons there, but I watched the pro give lessons to other people and then attempted to emulate what he had uh, told them to do. And uh, uh, through a number of unusual events, I became the, the number one player on the Broad Ripple High School tennis team. Wow. Uh, and then I went to Northwestern University and <clears throat> was encouraged, I'd say almost forced by my fraternity to play in the intramural tournament uh, at Northwestern my freshman year. I, I won the intramural tournament and the, the tennis coach invited me to come out for the team. And so I did, and later I played tennis for Northwestern. So th th that was a, uh, a kind of a positive statement, which reinforces what Miss Galley suggested that I do. Yeah. So th 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 those are some of those historic things. Uh, th the quality of teachers at Public School 84 and at Brotherville High School was astounding at that time period extremely well-read, well-educated, and committed to their work. Uh, I have to say that the environment was very conducive to a, I think, a quality liberal education. Yeah, that makes sense. Huh, that's really cool. Now, you talked a lot about those sort of family dinners with your parents. Um, did you learn a fair amount about your family's political beliefs as a child from those dinners? Oh, yes. Yes, my, my, my father was a, uh, uh, had a, a lot to say about political world. And uh, he pointed out that he came from a family in Johnson County, Indiana, the Mutz family, in which most of the men uh, were Democrats. Uh, they were the brand of Democrat, which people fondly called Southern Indiana conservative Democrats, but nevertheless Democrats. Uh, he admitted to voting for FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, twice, and, and then moving to the Republican Party when Roosevelt ran for a third term. Mm, okay. Uh, he... Uh, he, of course, at the time, was advancing rapidly in the business community, and I suggest, I suppose, was that uh, the colleagues that he ran into and talked to largely were Republicans at that time. That may have influenced his ideas, but I think more than anything else, he, he recognized that the Roosevelt administration was the first administration to 
really produce examples of what we today call big federal government. Yeah. Major programs, uh, social welfare programs, and uh, he, he saw a, a danger in that, uh, in that it uh, drove up uh, the federal deficit, uh, that uh, uh, it took more of the resources of society out of the private sector and put those resources into the public sector. And he, he felt that uh, uh, the private sector was the best creator of jobs and wealth and that part of the goal should be to maximize the amount of resources in that private sector. But we had long, long conversations about the economics of government spending at the, the federal level. Did not say a whole lot at that time about Indiana spending as a state, uh, but at the federal level, we talked a lot about it. Uh, other subjects that we, we talked about, for, for example, included race relations. And, uh, of course, at, at, my, at that juncture in my life, uh, that was not an issue that I had very much experience with. Quite candidly, the only African-American people I knew uh, were um, domestic employees who worked at our home on the north side of Indianapolis. Okay. And, of course, I got to know them well and like them, like them. And they certainly were nice to me as I grew up. But the, nevertheless, the, the fact is that uh, uh, I, I didn't know very many African-Americans. In fact, at Broad Ripple High School, <clears throat> there was only one in my graduating class. Wow. Now, you have to realize that uh, we were coming off that moment of separate but equal Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the in the education system, yeah, and uh, we had a, a, a an all African American high school in Indianapolis called Christmas Addicts, uh, named after one of the heroes of the Boston Tea Party, and uh, uh, it was of course well known at that time for its basketball teams, etc. Uh, but it, it was a, a segregated school system, and. Uh, uh, the integration was just beginning at that time. Uh, it was after Brown versus Board of Education, and uh, important moment. We, we talked a lot about the African American community, and, and, and there were some remnants of bias uh, in the minds of my mother and father at that time. Although I never heard any derogatory words about. Uh, the uh, African-American community, and I, I also uh, saw them feeling like they had an obligation to help people who had less resources than they did, and so uh, there are at least two African-American families who worked at the Barbasol Company at, who were the, uh, the beneficiaries, I guess you'd call it, of uh, gifts from my mother and dad, uh, and I remember spending time with my dad we went down to the plant that is the factory at 10th and senate avenue and uh, uh he said uh, you know there are times when we need to share the resources we have with other people uh, who have less than we do and he said that's what we're going to do today and then we went and visited 
uh, with one of the people that he worked with. Wow. So that, that, that's kind of the background. I, uh, my dad also, I remember one day at dinner, said, you won't believe what I did today. And, of course, he said, what I did was I spent the entire day volunteering for the United Way in Indianapolis. And what we were doing was evaluating requests for funding from from the United Way. And, of course, I didn't know what the United Way was at that point. He described how it worked. And, of course, his comment was, uh, if uh, there wasn't a United Way, the business community would need to invent it. And uh, so uh, my introduction to philanthropy, if you want to call it that, or, or giving, it came from him and from the dinner table. Uh, during that same time period, a little later, uh, I was uh, working on the copy desk of the Indianapolis News in a summer job. And uh, uh, it was the year in which the Kinsey Report was first released from Indiana University. And uh, people at the News and Star couldn't wait to get to the uh, wire machines to see what the latest installment was on the the Kinsey Report. As you might guess, it was a revolutionary uh, concept and disclosed all kinds of information about uh, American people which nobody even talked about, let alone read about in the paper. And so uh, that particular uh, event evoked a number of conversations at the the dinner table. Uh, As I said, it was a liberal education. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Um, So now... Growing up, you were obviously, as a kid, World War II was going on. Um, what yeah. was it like? Well, I, I lived in a family where my father, I guess fortunately, uh, was called for physicals and rejected okay. a couple of times. And so uh, he was classified under the Selective Service Administration as 4F. And 4F meant you were not eligible to serve and didn't have to serve and so he did not serve during the second world war he did become an air raid warden and Mm. was responsible for one half of the city of indianapolis he supervised uh the the system for uh, the uh, protection of the population against a potential raid of course that never happened but uh, he had a white hat, a big white hat he wore, and a bunch of other stuff that, that was part of this. And during that time period, uh, we had what were called blackouts and brownouts. And those were practice sessions for air raids. Wow. And for, a, and for a certain period of time, everybody was supposed to turn off all their lights so that a potential uh, enemy couldn't see where to drop their bombs. And uh, we were advised to hole up in our homes in a room without windows. And uh, the tradition at our house during those air raids was for my father to go out and make his rounds to make sure all the lights were out, which he did. (laughs) And then when he came home, we sat in that darkened room 
in the middle of the house we lived in on Winthrop and uh, uh, listened to FDR deliver one of his fireside chats. He was famous for these uh, this method of communication with the population. And uh, uh, I will never forget the sound of, of, of his voice. Uh, he was a uh, dominant political factor. And uh, he, he obviously uh, uh, made a big impression on me and on the population of America, since, of course, he was elected to four terms. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what was it like for your parents to try to, you know, or I guess for you, what was it like, you know, hearing about the war? Did you talk about the war with your parents? Did they explain to you what was happening and, you know, or talk to you about the rise of the Nazi party in Germany or? Yes. Uh, my father was the first person to explain to me that Adolf Hitler had come to office through an election. He was actually popularly elected to office. Right. And then, of course, he assumed his dominant role in the uh, uh, kind of philosophy that was uh, anti-Jewish and, in many cases, anti-Catholic uh, as well. Uh, the, the Holocaust was not well known at that time, so we didn't talk much about that. And I doubt if we ever talked about it. Maybe what I know about is what I've learned since then. But at, at any rate, um, uh, the other thing, of course, that we talked about was the uh, war itself. And we had rationing, in effect. First of all, gasoline was rationed. And so you had a designation for your usage of gasoline. And it was A, B, C, and D, I think. And if you were A, you had a lot more gasoline than other people did because you had some kind of essential uh, role to play in society. Uh, it limited the, the mobility of our family. Our family vacations took place in the state of Indiana at state parks rather than traveling around the country as we had done previously. Uh, my father was really big on travel to Canada, travel to uh, national parks and all that sort of thing, which we didn't do during the war. Uh, food was rationed during that time period. Uh, uh, it, it was very clear uh, that we were in a war. Society knew it. And I have never seen a time in my life when the country was more united around a goal. That goal, of course, was to defeat Adolf Hitler in Germany, Mussolini in Italy, and uh, uh, the emperor in, in Japan. Right. And uh, as a boy, I had a dark board with pictures of these three people on it. <laughs> I periodically was supposed to throw darts at it. I'm not sure I did that much, but yeah. I remember the dark board. Uh, the, the government did a pretty good job of spreading the word and uh, bringing the general population into the war effort. Uh, a number of members of my family were in the war effort. Uh, I had a cousin named Frank Mutz, who was also from Edinburgh, Indiana. <clears throat> He'd be a cousin of my father's. and He was a nationally honored pilot of the P-38 fighter plane. And uh, he shot down numerous enemy planes, uh, 
notably in the Pacific Theater, where he was fighting the Japanese Zero. So it was the P-38 versus the, the Zero. It was not, on a few occasions, I remember seeing stories in the paper about his success and also about his downing when he was shot down and uh, later uh, was rescued. Uh, so he was a genuine hero in, in the Second World War. And there were others that we knew about, but the, the actual uh, danger of death really never quite touched our family uh, like it did others. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Definitely a really wild time to be alive. And then, I guess, shortly after World War II, then the Cold War opens up. And uh, just, yeah, you, you got to really see a lot, I guess. Yeah, the, the Cold War did open up. I don't remember my father talking too much about the Cold War. Yeah. I do remember him talking about the fact that the Great Depression <clears throat> and the recession that occurred before the Second World War ended, he, he said, largely because of the war. The economy was accelerated. Uh, many businesses operated 24 hours a day, as, as did his. You may wonder why shaving cream would be so essential, but there was a small tube of Barbasol in every uh, pack that was used by our, our army in the field. Mm, wow. So, the Barbasol was a name well-known, largely because it was the brand of choice uh, at that moment. Uh, <clears throat> so I guess what I remember most about the post-war era was the recovery of the U.S. economy, uh, the uh, uh, increase in, in uh, manufacturing, the uh, uh, movement of soldiers who came back under the GI Bill. And so what happened, of course, was that the percent of the population that had college experience dramatically changed after the war. Yeah. And the GI Bill uh, turned out to be one of the great moments in education history. Uh, uh, it was not unusual to go to Indiana University, where my mother and father went, and see Quonset Hut after Quonset Hut that were built uh, to house more students on those campuses. And even when I went to Northwestern University, uh, I still had in my in the school a handful, maybe more than a handful, of veterans who were studying under the GI Bill. Uh, they were much more mature than the rest of us. Many of them married. Uh, and education was a serious matter. Uh, when it came time to study, you better be quiet, or one of them were, would box your, box your ears. Uh, so it, it was a, a a moment in which uh, the GI Bill became a big factor in American life. Education became a bigger factor, uh, and manufacturing accelerated. Now, with manufacturing, incomes of middle America grew, and this made it possible for uh, people to buy houses in the the, the starter house <laughs> was a phenomena. By that I mean, of course, the first house that a family has uh, became a big, big deal. And uh, I remember my father talking a lot about the 
housing developments near New York City, where where uh, mass home construction was first uh, taking place. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Now, talking about your sort of education growing up, um, what schools did you attend? Well, uh, of course, I went to kindergarten, but that was yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, my, my grades one through eight were at public school, 84 in Indianapolis. Okay. And, yeah. and, then, and then I went to Broad Ripple High School. Right. Okay. That's right. And, and, I, then, and then I went to Northwestern University. I got both a bachelor's and a master's degree uh, from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. Oh, okay. Interesting. Now, when you were in school, did you have any favorite subjects? Well, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, well, I, I enjoyed the writing courses that I took at Northwestern, but of course they were mandatory in the journalism school. Yeah. And uh, enjoy is not the right word. I guess I'd have to say uh, it, it dominated that part of my education. Uh, the Medill School prided itself on turning out good writers, and uh, uh, the emphasis w was on uh, the quality of your writing, the ability to explain a complicated matter in simple terms, <clears throat> a whole lot of things like that. So, yeah, that was a dominant influence. Uh, the other thing I guess I would say about my experience at, at Northwestern, it be, began an uh, involvement in, in the political realm in that I was involved in student government there, uh, representative of the student governing board for my class, uh, two of the uh, four years I was in school. Uh, I was a candidate for president of the student body but lost that election by uh, seven votes, uh, and uh, we had in Northwestern two political parties. They, they were not Democrats and Republicans. Uh, they were the Student Congress, which I was a member of, and maybe a little conservative, and Federation of Northwestern Voters, which was the other party. All of this was set up in an effort to give students an idea about how political parties function, what they do, how they achieve success, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Now, another thing I was curious about, did you have any views about the state of Indiana or about being a Hoosier growing up and, and also then going on to college? Well, of course, I had views. They're largely a result of my father and mother. Uh, yeah. Back in those days, basketball was king, and and so uh, everybody talked about it. And my father and I went to many basketball games and baseball games, and we were fans of the Indianapolis Indians. Oh, okay. Who played out on 16th Street here in Indianapolis, and uh, uh, my father and I went to lots of Indians games. Uh, but my mother was not much on baseball, so she didn't go with us. But uh, uh, the high school basketball tournament was a really big event in Indiana in those days. 
as you probably know, it, there's one class, single class basketball, mm-hmm. and it's the era in which uh, the little town of Milan became famous. Right. Later, later made the movie Hoosiers about it, uh, even though the name Milan doesn't appear in the Hoosiers movie. Yeah. Uh, it was also the era of Christmas Addicts' ascendancy into high school basketball, and uh, uh, Christmas Addicts actually won two state championships during that time period, first time an Indianapolis school had ever won, and uh, uh, we saw the development of some of the uh, men at, at, at Addicts who would become uh, really icons in, in, in basketball, the, the most famous one being Oscar Robertson. Right played here in Indianapolis. Uh, I actually knew Oscar. I, mean, I, I, don't, I haven't seen him for a long time, but I, I did some business with him after, well, after this time period. But, but oh. at any rate, uh, the, the, uh, this was the era of the George McGinnis, uh, who played for Washington High School. And, and, of course, one of the big deals was just before I went to Broad Ripple, uh, Coach Frank Baird took the Rockets to the afternoon game of the state finals. And uh, that was really a big deal. And it was thought about the possibility that Broderipple might become the first school in Indianapolis to win the tournament. They didn't. Of course, Addicts came along later. But that that, that was all part of the, of, uh, of the environment, the culture at that point. Yeah, that's neat. Absolutely. Um, so... When you got to college now, did your understanding and or awareness of politics change at all? Or, Well, yes, it, it did. Uh, one of the reasons for that was that Adlai Stevenson, uh, who was U.S. Senator from Illinois, was a Northwestern graduate and was on campus to speak periodically. And so, of course, he's a Democrat. I'm a Republican, so we uh, went to hear him speak. Uh, we had a student activity in which we created our version of a national political convention. And we nominated candidates and voted on them and all that sort of thing. And the various housing units, fraternities, sororities, and independent housing units uh, had delegations to the, the, the convention, in essence. And uh, so that, that was an opportunity to learn about the national convention process and uh, uh, of course, the role of political parties. Meanwhile, back at home, when I was home, my parents were talking about Indiana politics and uh, uh, the ascendancy of uh, uh, certain people who might become uh, quite successful. And uh, my mother, in particular, was uh, well well aware of the the fact that a a president could, in fact, uh, do their best to eliminate an opponent by appointing that opponent to an ambassadorship. And that's exactly what, what happened during that time period. Uh, kind of an interesting story. But at any rate, the point I make is that uh, what we see today on the part of Donald Trump to uh, discredit his, his opponent mm-hmm. uh, rather than to talk about what, what he was going to do or how he was going to do it, 
that that was a subtle way of doing that back in the, in those days. Okay, interesting. So that's a, a kind of a, a I guess a typical political strategy historically. Um, but yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, this, this is the the area uh, the era of Schricker uh, uh, as governor. Uh, later, Harold Harold Hanley as governor. Uh, the uh, I guess I'd have to say Indiana at that time bounced back and forth. It was not quote a red state all the time. You had Democratic governors and Republicans. Yeah. But, and we also had a single term limit. So you couldn't succeed yourself. Now, Henry Schricker did succeed himself, but what he did was he he laid out for four years and then ran again and was elected the second time. So he did actually serve two two terms. Yeah. Okay. Now, after college, after you graduated from Northwestern, uh, what was your first job? Okay. Well. I think I mentioned to you earlier that I had been working summers on the copy desk of the Indianapolis News. Okay. Uh, on other summers, I worked in the public relations department at the Allison Division of General Motors here in Indianapolis. I also worked as the publicity director for the Indiana State Fair and publicity director for Starlight Musicals, which was a uh, summer musical series of uh, professional singers and dancers who performed on a stage built on the north end of the Butler Bowl, the place where Butler played football. Okay. Uh, so those are jobs I had. But my first real job uh, out of college was on the copy, I'm sorry, on uh, at Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America in Pittsburgh, where I worked in the public relations department. Okay. Uh, I wrote news releases and wrote speeches for executives and th things of that kind. Interesting. Now, what were your career aspirations? Well, when I first got to college, I guess I, I saw myself as the, the man in the gray flannel suit. You know, the, okay. uh, the guy who entered employment at a large company. Succeeded and later became an officer of that company. Now, I would have to say that after my two and a half year stint at Alcoa, I then realized that that life was not for me. That was not something that uh, turned me off. I uh, uh, decided that I needed to come back to Indianapolis. Uh, part of that was due to the fact that my mother died uh, at a young age. She was in her 50s, early 50s. And so I was back to see my father periodically. Oh, okay. And coming back to Indianapolis was a bigger deal than it is now from, to Pittsburgh. Uh, usually had to drive because I couldn't afford the airplane fares. But the point I make is that uh, the... Uh, uh, the, the, the circumstances were that I had kind of decided uh, that I wanted to run for office someday. Mm. And I felt that I could do a better job running for office in my hometown, Indianapolis, than I could do in Pittsburgh, even though I was active in the Young Republicans in Pittsburgh and actually 
one time chairman of the Allegheny County Republicans, which is the county in which the city of Pittsburgh is, is located. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, volunteering for a Republican congressman who represented part of the suburban Pittsburgh area named Bob Corbett. And uh, he invited me to join his staff. And that would have involved moving, at least in part, to Washington. Uh, Carolyn, my wife, and I were expecting our first child at that point. Uh, My mother had died. All those things happened. And so our final decision was that we moved back to Indianapolis. And so that's what, what we did. Okay. Interesting. Now, when did you get married? Well, we were married on June the 21st, uh, 1958. Okay. And how many children do you have? We have two, two children, uh, Mark and Diane. Okay. So how much influence did your wife and children have on the development of your career? Well, they had a lot of influence, uh, my wife in particular is one of the greatest enablers uh, that I've seen over my lifetime. Uh, we've now been married as, as we speak here for 62 years, so wow. we've been together a long time. Uh, she not only was a good teacher, but she also was an, an enabler in a lot of ways. Uh, she um, uh, edited my speeches. She edited things I wrote and so forth. Uh, we had a lot of the interplay. And the other thing, of course, you may not know about, but during my childhood and period during high school, uh, I had a severe stutter. Mm, okay. uh, it's, it's the same uh, situation that Joe Biden has here right now. And, uh, I, I do remember having some speech therapy when I was in the third and fourth grade at public school at 84. I remember kids laughing at me when I, I stuttered. And you, you may find it to be a pretty astounding decision for somebody who stuttered to try to become a politician where your major method of getting elected was your ability to, to speak, to be heard, and to explain yourself. And so. Uh, but I, I did. Uh, my wife never corrected me, never finished sentences for me. Uh, I think she was kind of surprised and amazed that I did I did this. Yeah. But I, I would have to say to you that um, uh, I found the more I spoke, the better I got at it, the more I was able to deal with my stutter. I still stutter today, on and off, not much. But uh, it was a, a, a real challenge. Yeah. Well, yeah, it definitely sounds like all the effort paid off quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's you're you seem like a pretty crisp and clear speaker. So. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a big effort. <laughs> yeah, uh, you kind of your voice actually kind of reminds me of a like a sports broadcaster or something. So. Uh, well, I'm told I sound like James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. Oh, okay. And, yeah. <laughs> and of course, he, he's deceased now, I think, but yeah. uh, I, I probably did, yeah. Yeah. Cool, okay. Um, so, when you first decided to get 
involved in like running for politics? What shaped your political outlook? Well, I don't think I understand what, what you mean. What I mean, how did I get involved, or what? No. So, like, once you decide, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna run. Um, you know, what were kind of the uh, major ideas that were shaping what type of politician you wanted to be? Uh, okay. Well, let's, uh, again, I think we have to go back and historically look what was going on in Marion County. Yeah. I was a volunteer, as I told you, for the congressman in suburban Pittsburgh. And so right. when I came to Indianapolis, I volunteered again. And I went in to see the then Republican county chairman, Dale Brown. Mm-hmm. And his major comment to me was, have you got any money? Um, oh, okay. In other words, which I didn't, of course, but that was not what I was looking for. I was looking for a chance to participate. Uh, he was not encouraging it was not a, a good scene. And uh, okay. so I decided to form my own little political party, and I found founded an organization called the Northside Political Action Club. And this was a group of contemporary couples, primarily, of Carolyn and, and mine. Uh, we, we, we met monthly. We had speakers who were all politicians. Uh, we were committed to the Republican side of the spectrum, and uh, included in our group are a number of people who have gone on to be successful, including uh, uh, Bill Ruckelshaus, uh, who was famous for the Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, uh, it included uh, uh, Ned Lampkin, who was later majority leader of the Indiana, uh, the, uh, Indiana General Assembly, uh, and, and several others. But at any rate, the that was my start. Yeah. Now, the idea was that if, if you had some people who volunteered and did things in politics that the county organization would take notice of and give you a chance, well, that didn't happen. And so I became part of the Republican Action Committee. Uh, Republican Action Committee uh, was a group of idealistic young men and women mostly in their late 20s and early 30s, and a group, small group of Republican office holders in Marion County. And we basically said, we can do better. Uh, and it was our conviction that Dale Brown was more interested in maintaining control in his position uh, and the, the patronage that he had available to him through the license branch system and through the 2% club was more interested in keeping those sources of income than he was in electing Republicans. Yeah. And, and so we organized and uh, created the Republican Action Committee. Uh, the uh, Republican office holders uh, suggested and actually voted to get Keith Buellen uh, to, to lead that effort, which he did. And uh, there's an enormous amount of, of history that follows. Now, it's interesting you're asking these questions because uh, all that I've described to you, most of it anyway, is in my, my, my new book that came out uh, two two weeks ago. Okay. It was published by the Indiana Historical Society, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's, uh, its title is uh, uh, An Examined Life, the John Mutt Story. And, of course, An Examined Life comes from that uh, quotation about uh, an examined life 
is is worth living, an unexamined life is not worth living, etc., attributed to Socrates. So anyway, uh, that's that whole story that I just described is, is in the book, uh, as well as some of the childhood events that you ask about. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Well, that, yeah. That's a, I'm sure that's a great resource for people that want to dive deeper then on some of these questions. That's great. Um, so you, you mentioned that you sort of got involved in politics uh, in Indiana as being part of that action committee. Um, were there any key issues or legislation that you really wanted to champion or fight against? Um, well, we, yeah, what, what we were interested in uh, was making Indianapolis a more important city, a better place to, to live. Yeah. And, and we were tired of people calling Indianapolis a, a cornfield with lights and a, a place that people pass through on the way to somewhere else. Uh, the story was that Kurt Vonnegut, the author, said that Indianapolis is a sleepy city. Uh, they watch a race one day a year and sleep the other 364. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm not sure he actually said that, but it certainly has appeared in a lot of places. Uh, so we wanted to see Indianapolis do better. Now, what were the things we cared most about? Well, the number one one was a higher quality of secondary ed or of, of college education in Indianapolis. Up to that time, uh, there were uh, only extensions from Indiana and Purdue University in, in downtown Indianapolis. There were, was, of course... Uh, a campus that had the IU Law School, Medical School, and School of Dentistry uh, in the uh, Indiana in, in the University Corridor on the northwest corner uh, of, uh, of the county. So, our initial goal was to bring to Indianapolis a four-year independent university with its own board of trustees and own state budget uh, to serve the greater Indianapolis area. Uh, Dick Luger had been elected mayor uh, the year before I was elected in the legislature, and uh, in an upset, he had beaten uh, incumbent John Barton, and in an excerpt in the primary, he defeated former mayor Alex Clark. And, and so what we did at this point was that uh, we decided to create, quote, the University of, of Indianapolis. And we introduced bills to that effect. <clears throat> when I say we, I mean the 15-member Republican delegation from Indianapolis, which included, uh, well, that was all House members, and then there, there were four Senate members. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, the result of this was that, uh, and if you read the book, you'll read the story of how we did this, how we got together, and uh, among other things, we decided that you can't do this by yourself. You had to have support from someplace else. So we delegated individuals in our delegation to go make friends with members of the legislature in other parts of the state. And our approach there was to ask them, well, what do you want from the legislature? And then we, of course, had have an opportunity to tell them what we wanted. So that was our approach. Right. Okay. And... I guess before you really got involved as a politician, did you have any state or local political heroes or people you looked up to? Well, I can mention a few. Uh, one would be uh, 
Buellen himself, who was a dynamic guy right. and a great leader. <clears throat> Another uh, would probably be W.W. Dub Hill. Okay. He was a state senator, late, later head of the Public Service Commission, uh, one of the brightest people I've ever met in the political realm. Uh, there were others, of course. Um, I guess the, the the ones I would think about were in the in Marion County primarily. One of them, of course, was my mother-in-law. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But my mother-in-law, Marsha Hawthorne, <clears throat> had been elected uh, to the legislature for one term, and then decided to run for recorder of Marion County, hmm. and uh, she had lost her husband four or five years before, and uh, this was a job that provided regular income to her and something that uh, used her talents and skills, and so that's what but she did. She served two terms as Mary County Recorder. Interesting, okay. Uh, th- th- those would be examples of people. Uh, Dick Luger, of course, was in the beginning of his career, and I would have to say that he and Bill Ruckelshaus were people who I admired uh, tremendously. They both uh, had an intellectual capacity and an ability to uh, explain their ideas uh, that was uh, pretty exceptional. Yeah, absolutely. So did you have a particular campaign strategy when you were running? Well, yeah, the strategy was to be part of the Republican Action Committee. Yeah. Okay. And and, and uh, elect the entire slate, and that's what we we, we did. We, we had in in the election of nineteen sixty eight one of the most compelling victories maybe in Indiana election history. Wow. Uh, we elected a, a governor Ed Whitcomb from Seymour, Indiana. We elected a majority in the Indiana House and a majority in the Indiana Senate. Uh, we elected nearly all Marion County Republicans, uh, including uh, the city county. I'm sorry, the city council and the county council. That's before Unigov. So you had both of those. So uh, we had a lot of power. Yeah. You know, the, the the lines of political influence kind of lined up in an unusual way. And so one of the questions, of course, that we talked about: Well, what do we do with all this power? How do we get it done? And, and that's what brought about the University of Indianapolis conversation. But I, what I didn't finish that conversation was that when we were meeting at, at John Burkhardt's house on the west side of Indianapolis to talk about the University of Indianapolis legislation, that's when the idea of UNIGOV came up. Yeah. And, and uh, we decided at that meeting that we would talk about how to bring unified government uh, to Marion County. And uh, during that time period, we, we also uh, had time to study other consolidations of local government in the United States. And uh, uh, Dick Luger uh, was extremely well read on that subject, and uh, I became better read on it as a result. Uh, the, one of the things that people forget is the, the really early uh, consolidation took place in New York City, where the five boroughs were consolidated into to New York City. That was a big deal. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it was done legislatively, much how we were going to do it in, in Indianapolis. Sure, sure. Yeah, can you talk a bit more about your role in Unigov legislation then? and, and how? Sure. I, I can tell you. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was one of, of eight people who were assembled at the Burkhart House. John Burkhart was the, uh, I call him the godfather of the Action Committee. He financed it and stood behind us, behind the scenes. He was a prominent local businessman. He built the pyramids on the northwest corner of Marion County. He started the Indianapolis Business Journal and later started similar publications in other Midwestern cities. Uh, he was the founder of and creator of the College Life Insurance Company, uh, quite successful. And uh, so we met at the Burkhardt House. And the, the, there were really uh, nine of us, uh, and those people were, I'll start with, three legislators. Uh, Larry Borsch, who was in the House then, later elected to the Senate. Uh, Ned Lampkin, uh, in the House then, and later the majority leader of the House. And, and me, and, and I was in, in the House at that particular time. Uh, the others in the meeting uh, were Dick Luger, uh, his deputy mayor, John Walls, uh, the president of the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce, Carl Dorch, uh, the president of the city council, uh, Tom Hasbrook, and the president of the county council, Bert Servat. Uh, we were later joined by two attorneys, uh, <coughs> Charles Whistler and Lou Bowes, B-O-S-E, uh, who did the bill drafting for us as we created our University of Indianapolis legislation and also the Unicus legislation. Yeah, okay. And, and so I guess I'd have to say, yes, I was involved in the development of the Unigov legislation and uh, uh, helped uh, get it passed. Yeah. And how hard was it to get that legislation passed? Well, there's an entire chapter in my book devoted to that. Okay. <laughs> and and I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to go into all the details. Yeah. I have to say that... Uh, we had to do a tremendous amount of compromising. Yeah. The bill originally had schools in it. Uh, that clearly could not be passed. This was an era of white flight from the old Indianapolis public school region uh, into the suburbs. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, uh, that just wasn't going to happen, so we took the schools out. Uh the township trustees turned out to be a real problem, so we took them out of the legislation. And we also took the cities of Speedway, Lawrence, and Beach Grove out of the legislation. Yeah. Who, who didn't want to be deprived of having their own mayor. But what we did, of course, was it granted the right to vote for the mayor to everybody in Marion County, including the people that lived in those uh, three, three cities. Uh, so the... the uh, problem with getting it passed, of course, was that in the legislature in Indiana, traditionally, it's always been uh, a case where the outstate people always seem to be in competition with the, within Indianapolis for resources and for influence. And, and so uh, we uh, uh, made a big effort at recruiting Republicans and Democrats uh, to this legislation. And uh, 
I mean, a, a good example of this might be when I visited with uh, a, a Bloomington legislator, newly elected just like I had been, and I said, well, what are you looking for from the next session? He said, it's easy. I want a four-lane road from Indianapolis to Bloomington so people can easily get to football and basketball games. And I said, well, you know, you'd have to have an increase in the gasoline tax to do that. He said, yes, I know. I'm prepared to support that and work on it. So there was an example of a kind of, you could call it a deal. Yeah. It was kind of a, how you build a coalition around your issue. And, of course, I told him our goal was the University of Indianapolis uh, and also uh, the Unigov legislation. Yeah, okay. So what would you say now, you know, looking back at, at how Unigov has affected things, what would you say are the major changes that uh, have been made as a result of that legislation? Well, of course, first of all, it really put Indianapolis on the map in a different way. Uh, we became one of the 11 largest uh, cities in the United States overnight. Uh it suddenly became a very desirable role to be mayor of Indianapolis. Yeah. Dick, Dick Luger was the first of those, uh, uh, I think, really highly qualified individuals who sought that job. He was followed by Hudnut, uh, Goldsmith, uh, uh, and name them all right this minute. But anyway, very, very competent people on both sides of the aisle who wanted to be mayor and who saw it as uh, a great place to be of service, but also a stepping stone to something else. Yeah. So it, it made a big difference in the development of Indianapolis. At the same time, it also uh, brought the Lilly Endowment into the equation. Okay. The, the last of the three Lillies who founded Lilly Endowment were still alive, and they actually, he, that's, Mr. Lil, Mr. Eli Lilly III, I guess it is, actually came to Dick Luger and said, uh, we've been investing our money all over the world, and we'd like now to concentrate on our hometown. What would you suggest we do? And so Dick's first suggestion uh, was to finance improvements to the city market in downtown. Uh, this followed the bricking of, of the circle, the renovation of the Monument Circle, which, of course, was a state-owned property, but nevertheless uh, a, a clear part of the image of Indianapolis. Uh, this was followed by uh, substantial appropriations to what had become then IUPUI. Uh, and uh, so the, 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 what I'd say is that the, the the Unigov legislation, in my mind, was was the turning point in the development of Indianapolis since Indianapolis was formed in 1816. I think it was that. Yeah. Wow, okay. Now, were there any, like, would you say, sort of negative impacts of the legislation that you didn't really, you know, see until later? Or are there any things that you would have changed about uh, the legislation based on yeah. how... Yeah, there are several things. I think the most important one I would change is that in an effort to get votes from uh, legislative districts outside of, of Marion County, we put a cap on on uh, uh, the addition of territory to Indianapolis, where you could not annex. And 
the result of that was we had done that because we were told, we thought, that we couldn't get any votes from these legislators in the counties around Marion County if we didn't do that. Yeah. Well, the, what happened was none of them voted for it anyway. Not a single vote came from those people. But, but that is still in the legislation. And I certainly wouldn't do it again if, if we could avoid it. Uh, it, it. It ended up being one of the reasons given by Judge Hugh Dillon uh, for the school busing decision in Indianapolis when the thousands of, of black students were bused to suburban school districts in an effort to fulfill a, an equitable and easy, uh, uh, equal education uh, after Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, and, and I guess it, it also was a... Uh, uh, well, you talked about negatives. You said what I'd leave out. The first one is the anti-annexation clause. The second thing that I, I think is, is clear here, and uh, this group of people who worked at the Burkhardt House, we were all white males. Mm. There were no women at that meeting, although we had a number of women in our delegation. Right. There were no African Americans, although we had uh, African Americans in our delegation, including Harriet Bailey Kahn, uh, who had served as the, uh, 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 she's a, a lawyer, I can't remember her exact title then, but anyway, and uh, Coach Ray Crow from the Christmas Addicts famous basketball team. Uh, Unigov at that time was actually endorsed by the recorder, the uh, black newspaper in, in Indianapolis, uh, we saw it as granting the African-American community uh, almost guaranteed districts in which the representatives would be African-Americans. And that's what happened. Uh, there are those who criticize the legislation because it moved the vote for mayor from the old city boundaries to the county boundaries. And they maintain that that made it impossible for a black man or woman to be elected mayor. Uh, that may or may not be true. That was not our intention. It was not a, quote, power grab on our part. Uh, but it's been uh, interpreted that way by critics who have written about Unigo. Right. Uh, so th th that's one of the issues that is still, still there. Uh, but now that you've got a dominant uh, African-American population in Indianapolis. We still haven't had a black mayor. We undoubtedly will have one of these days. I think that'd be a great, a great thing. I don't see any problem with it. But I, I, that was one of the things that was, was considered. That You have to realize that back in those days, the African-Americans didn't have many institutions that they ran. Right. The, major, the major institution they ran was their church and uh, they particularly uh, had strong emotional feelings about that they thought ultimately they ought to have a black school superintendent which of course they've had now they thought they could, could have a black mayor which they haven't had uh, those are criticisms that, that linger today and since we're now as we talk in the 50th anniversary of Unigov, will be debated and, and discussed in the next several months. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 
Well, I want to go back in time a little bit uh, to uh, before, right before you were elected uh, to the General Assembly, uh, a little bit more. Do you remember who your main opponent was at the time? Well, you see, we were elected at large for Maryland. Okay. And, and so it was 15 of us against 15 of them. Got it. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, it was kind of just two groups against each other, not yeah. one-on-one. Okay. Um, so what was it like your first election day? How did you feel? Well, I, I was responsible for organizing Lawrence Township, which is, uh, you know, one of the nine uh, townships in Marion County. And so uh, my responsibility in the election was to get out the Republican vote in, in that township. And so I was busy. Uh, every minute of election day, working with precinct committeemen and uh, volunteers to get the vote out. Yeah. And uh, obviously, we were exhilarated at the end of the day. We won a, a magnificent victory. Yeah. Uh, there, as I recall, there wasn't any one of the legislative candidates who was less than 30,000 ahead of their closest opponent. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. Uh, so, how did your feelings change with each election, if at all? <laughs> well, of course, if you're in the election yourself, it's the greatest, most important election in the, the history of your life. Every time you go through a new one, yeah. that's what everybody says. But I, I would have to say that my feelings about this uh, over the years, uh, each time election day comes around, I still have that uh, feeling in my stomach of doubt about how it's going to come out. Mm-hmm. And of course, you don't win all the elections. Uh, uh, I was elected twice as the lieutenant governor of Indiana uh, with, with Bob Orr, who was the governor. And, and then, of course, I, I, I lost an election to Evan Bayh in 1988 for pretty close election, but as they laughingly say, that close doesn't, doesn't count. And uh, yeah. So, uh, that kind of emotional roller coaster uh, is always there on elections. It'll be there this year uh, when I'm an outspoken opponent opponent of Donald Trump. I'm yeah. a lifelong Republican. I've never voted for a Democrat for president until four years ago. Yeah. And, and I saw Donald Trump and still do as a disaster for the Republican Party and a disaster for the, the country. And so uh, I have publicly made my support uh, clear for Joe Biden, not because Joe Biden and I agree on lots of things, but rather I think we need to rid the country of this threat to an authoritarian presidency. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, as I said a long time ago in this interview, uh, my father was the first to point out to me that Adolf Hitler got elected to office and then became the authoritarian dictator that he later became. And uh, we're on the brink of that happening, in my opinion, here in, in Indiana, not Indiana, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, of course, as we speak here, the, the polling results show that uh, the likely winner is Biden, but uh, of course, I was told that four years ago, and it didn't turn out that way. So right. uh, I have the same feeling of trepidation, even though I'm not on the, the ballot. Yeah. Yeah, and that must be, that's something also, I, I did, you know, 
uh, see articles talking about uh, you endorsing Biden about uh, a month ago. And um, yeah, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about because, you know, you've obviously been a, a big figure in Indiana Republican politics. Um, you know, how has the party changed, do you think, over time from your period when you were, you know, very influential uh, to today? Well, it's changed in a lot of ways, but I want to start out by saying I'm not leaving the Republican Party. Right, of course. Yes. Uh, I, I, I still supported uh, Eric Holcomb for, for, for governor and the majority of the Republican candidates, but uh, it's the presidency that worries me. And yeah. And the presidency has become an imperial presidency uh, with enormous power centered in, in, in that office, and I'm concerned about it. Yeah. I, and I think thoughtful Republicans should be concerned about it. Now, how's the party changed? Well, uh, during this time period, uh, we have seen, through demographic changes and economic changes, a, a growing disaffection of what used to be middle America, who saw the American dream, in a sense, slipping away from them. And, and they reacted by becoming more conservative. The Tea Party movement and others like it grew out of this. Uh, unfortunately, attached to that Tea Party movement is an underlying racial prejudice. And, and it's, it's a sad situation, but this country is a country of immigrants. Uh, my ancestors were all immigrants, uh, as were most, except those who have Native American ancestors. And, and, and the, the, the whole point I make is that uh, uh, the thing that makes this country unique among others has always been its welcoming attitude about people coming from other parts of the world to bring their talents here. So from my viewpoint, the, the party has changed. There's a, a meaningful portion of the party uh, that uh, opposes this idea of the great melting pot, which we celebrated all the time I was in school. Uh, pictures of Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty and all that sort of thing being part of the heritage of this country. And, and I think we're turning our back on that. Now, uh, the growth of the Tea Party and this ultra-conservative movement, which also had as its underbelly a strong involvement in social issues, the abortion issue being the number one, the second one being same-sex marriage, and, and then all the legislation and attitudes dealing, dealing with LGBT people. And, and, and again, the, 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 the party uh, has moved farther to the right, at least in part, and of course I've always considered myself kind of in the middle of the political spectrum, Mm -hmm. And and now, uh, I guess I may be on the left side of the middle uh, because of what's occurred. But uh, Republicans always had determined that you don't win elections by being a radical. You win elections by being in the middle and being acceptable uh, to both sides and to employing a kind of careful reasoning about what you do. We're we're talking here about a, a, a system in which we have what's called a representative democracy. 
This means we, we don't put things up for a yes-no vote. We trust elected representatives to make decisions for us. And our goal ought to be to elect the most reasonable uh, and thoughtful people possible to make those decisions. Now, that's the MUTS philosophy. Clearly, the, the new Republican Party is trying to elect people who will make a iron commitment against abortion or in favor of certain kinds of Supreme Court nominees and a whole variety of questions. They, they also want to legislate uh, a number of things that deal with the personal lives of individuals, which I disagree with. So that's, uh, that's a part and parcel of, of changes within the party. Uh, if Trump loses, I think the battle for the soul of the Republican Party is going to be something to behold. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I, I know how it's going to roll out or how it's going to end up, but uh, uh, I think it's one of the important things that will come. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's definitely another big question. Is yeah, what are the ramifications uh, of that if he loses? And I, I know some people talk about like, okay, is there a possibility for a, a third party to develop as a result of that uh, sort of infighting or not? I guess it'll be interesting to see. Um, yeah, but you're right, and we don't know how that's going to uh, work out. In a sense, in a sense, there is a third party already. It is the arch conservative wing of the Republican Party. Yeah. Okay. It's what Donald Trump calls his base. Yeah. Yeah. But I do not believe that's a healthy thing for a two-party system. I go back to those days at the dining room table with my father. He said, "You know, one of the checks and balances that we don't write about." much because it's not in the Constitution, but it is the two-party system. Mm -hmm. The two-party system essentially assures us that there's somebody with a vested interest watching the people in, in power. And he said that's a very healthy thing. And uh, he said we, we need a, a viable two-party system in America. And then he said, this is something that distinguishes it from most of the rest of the world, where it's not unusual for democracies to have multiple parties. Yeah. And those multiple parties represent different viewpoints on a variety of questions. We have had for years an umbrella approach to party politics, mm -hmm. where the people are welcome under the umbrella. Yeah. And I guess my, my view is that, that that's, that's important. But whether we can maintain that or not in the years ahead, I don't know. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. So, I mean, really, when you're when you're talking about this and analyzing the situation, it sounds like you know you're saying that you know, Trump and you are both Republicans, but there's different types of Republicans within the Republican Party. Well, that's right. But see, Trump really isn't a Republican. Okay, okay, guys. So that's what I was trying to get at. Is like whether you thought he is a Republican. Or, well, yeah. Uh, Trump is, is, quote, an opportunist. And I'm okay. not opposed to taking advantage of opportunities, but right, right. Uh, he, uh, he has mined effectively the emotions mm -hmm. of this disaffected portion of the population who have been joined by the Tea Party movement and a number of others who are in the social party movements mm -hmm. and uh, social question movements. And, uh, He's put them together. That's that's how he won the election uh, in uh, 2016. Um, 
it remains to be seen how that will play out in, in this current election. We're, as I talked to you, we're just a week away, really a little over a week till the November 3rd election. Yeah. But, uh, I have to believe that the long-term interests of the country are better served by a more viable Republican Party, uh, which uh, emphasizes the quality of its candidates rather than the uh, emotion of the issues it supports. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, definitely another historic time to be alive. I mean, it's... <laughs> and yes. That's right. It, it, you and I were talking earlier about the moment in which the UNIGOV was passed and IUPUI was created. Well, that was also the moment in U.S. history when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson decided not to run for another term as president because of his involvement in the Vietnam War. Uh, and it was the era also of the uh, Democratic National Convention in Chicago, which was marred by gigantic riots and uh, violence. So yeah. th th there, was, th there were a lot of things going on at that time. That was a turning point. Uh, and again, as I said, our version of the turning point in Indianapolis was Unigo, which was a much different kind of uh, reaction. <clears throat> but I think we're on another one of those turning points now. Yeah, I mean, it definitely must be, you know, really, really interesting, especially from your perspective, you know, having seen so many things unfold in American history to now see the next turning point. Um, at, at, it's, I think that you would have a, a unique perspective on analyzing these things because you've already seen so many major turning points before. It's so. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I've been lucky to be alive uh, 84 years and hope I have a few more. And, and I guess I, I'd say that, yes, I have been fortunate. I, I saw the end of the Second World War. I saw the development of the Marshall Plan, which is an example of a victor actually putting the people they had defeated back in business again. It's a remarkable story. Uh, we we re rebuilt Europe, and we re rebuilt Japan, and the result of that was that we also built an important marketplace for our goods and services. So that's a historic moment as, as well. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the GI Bill, which came along, I mentioned that earlier, in, in which we revolutionized the availability of college educations uh, to thousands. So that was a turning point. And yeah. then, uh, there are some others, but I think, of course, the, the, the influence of the Supreme Court was another turning point that took place gradually over this period of time. And, you know, as I look back at these decisions, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, that, of course, involved the separate but equal doctrine. Uh, the uh, 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 other court cases that have come on since then, uh, dealing, well, first of all, with uh, abortion and, and a number of others, uh, that those are turning points, at least in how our society functions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, let's, turning back uh, to your political career, um, now, you mentioned your first campaign was you know, a group effort. Did you have 
any changes or to campaign strategies over your you know political career? Well, I, I certainly had specific things I wanted to do all the way through my political career. Uh, those those varied, of course, as yeah. time went by. But uh, you know, the, early in my political career, the enactment of the, a, a major research university for Indianapolis was tops, followed by UNIGOV, which became a major change. Uh, the the uh, Development of uh, venues for the arts and for athletics in Indianapolis became important. And, and then after I became a, a state office holder, I guess the, the biggest single thing I'll point out is, is the uh, uh, Japanese investment strategy. Mm, okay. uh, that, of course, uh, occurred because I was lieutenant governor. And at that time, the lieutenant governor of Indiana was responsible for economic development and so I had an extensive department of people who reported to me uh, plus I had the employment security division and the, the division of agriculture so I had over 2,000 people <clears throat> who were involved in the parts of government that I supervised and, and this was due to the fact that Governor Bob Orr wanted it that way and he was uh, pleased to include me as a partner in his uh, approach and uh, there's never been a lieutenant governor any time in the history of America I think who had a better relationship with his governor than I did okay. so, so that was a, a, a really big big deal for me and uh, uh, what happened was that we first took office that is Bob and I uh, in uh, 1980 uh, Indiana and the country was in a really severe recession at that point. Uh, <clears throat> unemployment was double digit. Uh, the uh, uh, interest rates were double digit and the uh, uh, <coughs> uh, growth rate was, was, was declining. It was a, a tough time for Indiana because of our reliance on manufacturing. Uh, our employees saw the Japanese, uh, as we said in those days, eating our lunch. That is, they were invading the U.S. auto market and doing it quite successfully because they were making an automobile that people wanted. It was a smaller car, used less gas, all that sort of thing. Our auto manufacturers had had a monopoly for so long. It isn't really a monopoly, it's a duopoly would be the right term. <coughs> And uh, what they did was, of course, <clears throat> for years, just pass along price increases to consumers. And they passed along increased labor costs, which resulted from the dominant influence of the United Auto Workers in the auto. So here comes Japan without any union, uh, with a, a lot of good designs and well-engineered engines and uh, uh, they really became an important factor. So when when I first took office, I, I, I said to my people, I said, you know, we can't produce jobs for people. Government can't do that. We can employ a few people, but generally government does not create jobs. And so the question is, how do we give people hope? And so our first move was to encourage local communities to start uh, 
what we call CDCs, Community Development Corporations. And these were a cooperative effort at the local level between the business community, the community, community, and the social service community to reassess what was good and bad about their communities, try to improve it. And then when they had a chance for new jobs, uh, market the, the community. Now, this, of course, gave people something to do during this period of anxiety. And uh, in the meantime, then we said, well, where are we going to get prospects? And our conclusion was, after analyzing the international market, was that the best place was Japan because the Japanese industrial complex had accumulated huge amounts of cash, was interested in expanding its market, and the biggest market available for automobiles at that time that they wanted was the U.S. market. So we opened offices of Indiana uh, in, in Japan. Uh, we also opened offices in other parts of in, in Europe as well. But the big effort was on Japan. And uh, uh, the, the history of that is, is now well known. We, when I first took office, we had six Japanese plants in Indiana. When I left office, we had over 60. And today we have over 130. Uh, Indiana is the leader among all the states on a per capita basis for Japanese investments and is in number two behind only California in the actual number of investments. So our philosophy really worked. Uh, it, was a, it was a gamble, to be sure. And it was a gamble for other reasons as well, and that is that uh, we had just defeated Japan in a monumental war. And there are a number of people still alive at that point who remember that war and who hated the Japanese. And uh, so uh, the, the, the statement that was made was, well, uh, they couldn't defeat us in the war, but they're going to take us over economically. Well, of course, that didn't happen because of the ingenuity and uh, education system in the United States. But the point I make is that there were risks involved with that Japanese investment strategy. Yeah, yeah. The result has been that it, it worked out extremely well. Uh, of course, our, our our first really big success was the uh, digital disc company that uh, Sony put in Terre Haute. The, the biggest plum, however, was the Subaru Azuzu plant in Lafayette, Indiana, which was the first of, of the automobile assembly plants. Uh, after that time period came uh, the uh, Toyota plant in, in uh, um, Princeton, Indiana, north of Evansville, and uh, the Honda plant in Greensburg, Indiana. But we're the only state in the Union that has three Japanese assembly plants. So the, that was a, a, a governmental goal that we developed as we uh, worked along for eight years. Yeah, that's, that is really interesting. Now, were there any like protests at all against that ever? You mentioned that some people had anxieties about that. Yeah, well, the, the, there wasn't a lot of opposition. As a matter of fact, most Hoosier communities, whether Democratic or Republican, were so eager to have jobs yeah, yeah. that they were willing to go along. Uh, now, it became an issue when I ran for, for governor in 1988, and uh, Evan Bayh used it rather well in uh, uh, 
recognizing the, the, the xenophobia of the time and his campaign commercials um, uh, in a not-so-subtle way uh, condemned the Japanese involvement in, in, in Indiana uh, cities. But I'd do it again. I, I think it was a factor in my loss of the governorship in 1988. Uh, but uh, I'd do it again because I think we did the right thing. And history now is showing how much of the right thing we did. There are 64,000 people in Indiana, Hoosiers, who worked in Japanese plants. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That Yeah, that's a big statement. So that's obviously that worked out. Yes, it did. So now when you're in the general Indiana General Assembly, uh, what were you thinking as you walked into the State House your first day in office? Well, I'd been there before because I'd been down to watch my mother-in-law. Sure, okay. House. I'd been there before. It wasn't as like having never been there before. Yeah. Obviously, I was very excited because I knew it was going to be sworn in that day. And uh, uh, we had uh, absolutely swept the election in the previous year. Um, it was a moment of uh, exultation but also a, a moment of, of challenge because uh, now we had to figure out what to do with the power we had. Yeah, definitely. Now, did you feel pretty comfortable with the legislative process right after the bat? Or did you take need some time to adjust? Well, it did take some time to adjust because, of course, uh, I had not served there before. But I had had a lot of experience in, in similar kinds of situations with uh, bills going to committee, committee hearings, and so forth through my student government days at Northwestern. Yeah. And, and, that, and, and that helped. Uh, I can't tell you that I was able to be a full-time uh, on-the-ground running legislator that first year, but uh, I, I learned quickly. Yeah, okay. And what were some of the best uh, methods for you in terms of learning the ins and outs of state politics? Uh, well, of course, the most important in and out uh, was learning how to communicate with your fellow legislators. Yeah. Both Republican and Democratic. And I, uh, I had a reputation for reaching across the aisle in those days. Uh, one of the legislators I worked with often uh, was uh, Senator Louis Mayhern from in Indianapolis. He was a, and he is still a Democrat. And we collaborated on lots of things. I mean, an example would be we supported the legislation that created the White River State Park, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an example of collaborative work. We also collaborated on a bill to raise uh, the stipend for uh, uh, aid to dependent children, AFDC. And, and of course, my Republican friends said, well, how can you pay for that? And I said, well, the amount of money they're getting is paltry. It is absolutely a crime to expect these people to live on that amount of money. And so I joined Louie on a bill to raise it. Uh, we, we didn't get it passed, but we finally got it passed a couple of years later. Sure. Okay. And so, yeah, you mentioned that you had kind of reputation for working across the aisle. Um, you know, why was that? What made you feel that that was, you know, a way of doing business when, 
you know, I, I was going through some old newspapers about your time in the General Assembly, and, and, and it was often they were talking about how you were kind of against the traditional strong-arm political tactics that were sometimes used. Um, you know, why were you so open to working with the other side? Well, because I, I saw votes for what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's just... it, it, uh, uh, it, 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 that's number one. But the second thing was that back in those days, our Democratic colleagues, many of them became close friends, social friends, people we had meals together and we went out drinking beer together, all that sort of thing. And, and so uh, you could argue vociferously on the floor of the Senate or the House over a specific bill, and then that night go out and have a beer with the person with whom you were having a debate. So that, that was common practice at that point. And there even were lobbyists who sponsored hotel rooms and other places in which they invited members of both parties to come and socialize. And uh, that's large, largely gone. When did you see that, uh, sort of, I guess it was, would you, now, I guess the question I want to ask is, you know, you served until, I guess, 1980 in the General Assembly. Um, did you see, over time, there start to be some uh, breaks in the ability to work together? Did it seem like it was becoming more, more polarized over time, or was that... I think that was pretty much after, after. the General Assembly. Uh, to be sure, the early beginnings of the ultra-conservative movement and the Tea Party and all that sort of thing uh, was fighting its way into the Republican Party. But um, I, I, I did not see the kind of animosity during my tenure in 13 years of the legislature, House and Senate, and even my eight years as, as presiding officer of the Senate, yeah. I mean, uh, here I was every day with all these people. I knew every one of them pretty, pretty well. I knew their, their wives and so forth. Uh, it was easy to talk to them about things you cared about. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's just changed quite a bit now with, yeah. Interesting. Uh, do you remember the first bill that you sponsored? First bill? Yes, I, I do. That's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> this this bill uh, will not be long remembered by anybody, but it was a, a bill that updated the sections of the Indiana statute to conform with internal revenue changes. Okay. In other words, every two years back in those days, we only met every two years, you had to update the Indiana Code so that it corresponded to the federal code. The reason for this is, of course, that Indiana taxes, uh, particularly the income tax, were largely based on the federal law. And then we applied a Indiana a rate to the income. And uh, so the first bill I passed was the updating of the uh, Indiana Code, and there were five sections to it. I can't tell you what they were now, but and, and nobody cares, I guess, except that it was done. Uh, that's the, the first bill. 
Okay. And did you have any like political mentors when you first got settled into the Indiana General Assembly? Well, yes, I guess I did. Among them was W.W. Hill, who I talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, another would be my mother-in-law. Okay. Uh, and a third one uh, would uh, clearly be, um, uh, let's see, mentor. I had another one in mind. Um, Well, I can't think of who the third one was, but there was one I was thinking about a minute ago. Um, there were a few uh, people in our delegation who had been in the legislature before. Uh, one of those uh, was a, a senator uh, from Hamilton County later uh, named Leslie Duvall. Oh, okay, yeah. Leslie Duvall was a conservative Republican. His father had been mayor of Indianapolis several decades before. And he was an example of somebody I relied on for questions concerning the criminal or civil code. I'm not a lawyer, and he was. He was an expert. And so I was able to go to him and ask for advice on certain bills. Yeah. That's useful. Okay. Um, now, you served in the House and the Senate. What would you say are the differences between uh, the members in the House and Senate, or were there no differences? Well, there certainly are differences, um, but the fact that one's a two-year term and one's a four-year term just suggests that you have a little more time to get your feet on the ground in the Senate before you have to start worrying about a campaign for the next election. Yeah. Uh, did you find the process for creating a bill to be pretty straightforward and well yes I, I did of course the old joke is that uh, passing legislation is like making sausage uh, but back to the matter is that the process uh, I understood I knew how to work it uh, I think and uh, uh, I found that in the legislature the most important issue was always to tell the truth yeah tell people you were dealing with what what, what your motivation was why you were doing it etc uh, people eventually catch catch on yeah and, uh, and so that was the thing that, that helped me the, the, the most um, now of course there were an occasional uh, bill that became very emotional for one reason or another but generally the legislature does not act on a partisan basis on over 90% of the legislation. Okay. It's that top 10% where the the caucuses get involved and take a position on a certain questions and so forth. Uh, since my history in the legislature is one of budget making, uh, I was uh, often on the Ways and Means Committee in the House and the Senate, Senate Finance Committee in the Senate. In both houses, I participated in the details of the state budget, and I became kind of the go-to person in the caucus for questions about the budget. Yeah. Everything from the school distribution formula to appropriations for building roads and highways. Yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing a lot about that, too. It sounds like yeah, you were pretty influential in that aspect. Um. 
Did you have a sense of how people would vote prior to actually voting on, on legislation? Well, I certainly did because, you you know, most legislators count before they take a vote. Yeah. <laughs> they want to know for sure what's going to happen so they sure. know how to deal with it. So, yeah, I uh, learned how to count. Yeah. That was, that was particularly true in the, in the committee process because you had to get the bill out on the floor before you could pass it. Right. Uh, how influential was party leadership um, during your time in the General Assembly? Well, it was extremely important. And the caucuses, uh, in a lot of ways, ruled with pretty much an iron hand. Uh, the way to be successful was to be influential in your caucus okay, so that you could uh, depend on your fellow party members to support your approach. Uh, and then asked about party leaders. Uh, L. Keith Bullen was a dominant party leader during a good deal of this time. And uh, uh, he, of course, uh, uh, behind the scenes supported UNIGOV, supported the IUPUI, University of Indianapolis idea. Uh, he seldom ever told me what to do. Uh, only on occasion would there be an issue that he thought affected election outcome, and he might fill you in on his viewpoint. But yeah. uh, I, I never had him uh, pressure me or threaten me. Okay. So you never really butted head much with party leadership or anything? No. I, most of us, you really didn't have to because you knew if you do, did things that they didn't like, they might not support you in the next primary. Yeah. But, uh, in general, uh, Keith and I had a great relationship. He respected my judgment, and I respected his. Okay, sure. Um, so here's kind of a, a different type of question for you. Um, what would you say the public doesn't know about how the Indiana General Assembly operates? Well... I think they lack information on how we make decisions. The fact that no legislator can be an expert on every issue, he has to go to somebody uh, whose opinion he trusts. That's number one. Uh, secondly, lobbyists perform a useful task in the legislature, uh, not because they represent a specific viewpoint, but because they represent a competing viewpoint. Yeah. Oh, for example, I often would get opinions from lobbyists on both sides of the issue and then take their viewpoints and compare them and decide, well, which one do I come down with? Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, that's that's a good point because I, I guess, you know, it's, it's pretty common for people to be, uh, especially outside of politics, for people to think about lobbyists as, you know, very dangerous to, to the country yeah. and well, the state. The third, yeah, the third thing I'd add to that is they do not most of them understand how important the caucuses are yeah. uh, to getting bills passed. And, of course, the, the, the caucuses, uh, if you get a caucus viewpoint, can tell you how many votes you've got in that caucus. Uh, every once in a while, we would have a what they called a binding vote in a caucus in which we ask the members to decide what they wanted to do and then get every member to pledge to support that viewpoint. Uh, the, the, the image is that this happens a lot. It may not happen more than two or three times in an entire session. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, what would you say were the most controversial legislative issues during your time in the assembly? Well, you know, clearly, clearly the abortion issue is one of those. That, that's a no-win issue. Yeah. You either got to be a for it or against it, and uh, you're better off to state your position early in the debate <clears throat> so you don't get tagged as a big participant in that. Yeah. So people wanted to be a participant. That was not my, my goal. Right. Um, so that had to be near the top. Um the, another one was, in my time was the Equal Rights Amendment, which was an amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, that would place in the Equal Rights section of the Constitution uh, females. And, uh, of course, you were in the process of amending the Constitution, which requires three-quarters of the states to pass a resolution in favor of it, and, and then it goes up to a referendum. Um that was a highly controversial piece of legislation. Um, you know, on the surface, how can you be against women having an equal opportunity? Uh, but there were a whole lot of arguments from the conservative side of the spectrum in opposition to it. So that was a controversial one. Yeah. Uh, uh, another controversy would, would be, uh, as, I, as you see, most of these are social issues. Uh, where the controversy arose, uh, every, every once in a while there'd be controversy about the, 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 the budget. And, you know, as a budget maker, I, I learned how to create the number of votes I needed to pass the vote, which was one more than half. And uh, uh, you sometimes had to add things to the budget for a local legislator. That's a give and take sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Now, when it came to the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, I've talked to some other legislators and stuff who were also involved in that. What was your role in that debate? I had no no role at all. Okay, just kind of, yeah, you were there. That was about it. That's correct. Okay. And um, in terms of the abortion debate, I guess, you know, for people today who might listen to this interview, one thing that will be interesting is to think about, has the debate changed um, today versus what it was when you were in office? Well, I guess my my view of that is it hasn't changed much. Okay. It seems to me that we're still arguing about the same things. Yeah. The people against abortion are trying to make it more restrictive, and those who are for it are trying to eliminate the restrictions to a point. Uh, there's one area of almost total agreement now, and that is that it's okay in the case where the life of the mother is at stake, mm -hmm. uh, but that's the only place where there's much agreement. Yeah. Uh, as I said earlier, the abortion issue is a no-win issue for a, a legislator. Uh, the, the polls show now uh, a majority of the population favoring abortion as a choice for women, uh, a personal choice. Uh, but uh, in any given district, it, it could be much closer than that. Yeah, sure. Um, what piece of legislation would you say was the most sort of complex to deal with in the General Assembly and took sort of the most uh, time to figure out? 
Well, I'd have to say that the Unica legislation, yeah. the television of, of Marion County government, sure. is, is enormously complex. Yep. It, it involves so many things, including uh, constitutional questions about taxation and things of that kind. You know, there are a lot of things there. Yeah. Now, now the state budget was a major puzzle every, every two years, so you just counted on that, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. What was your proudest moment as a legislator? My proudest moment? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know I can say proud moment. Uh, I obviously was elated when we got Unica passed. Uh, I was... Uh, I, I kind of took some pride every session in, in a budget year when, when we got the budget passed. That was under Indiana Constitution. You're not supposed to run a a, a deficit or a debt, and uh, uh, so getting those budget bills passed was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, in your op opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, it's changed. Uh, when I first took office in the legislature in 1967, nobody paid much attention to economic development. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later that suddenly economic development, even though it isn't contained in any of the burned statutes, became a responsibility for local government officials. Local mayors and county commissioners now consider economic development as a big deal, even though they don't have any uh, in the statute's responsibility for that sort of thing. Yeah. So I, I guess that's one of the things that was was a dramatic change. Uh, the other dramatic change was the change in the influence of labor unions in Indiana. Mm. When, I, when I first took office, the, the UAW and the AFCIO were major factors in lobbying and opinion about what was going on. Okay. Uh, they no longer have that kind of prominence. The, the teachers' union is still pretty important, but its importance has dropped, too, largely because of two things. Uh, one, uh, the, the right-to-work law in Indiana, and the second one is that uh, the only way now that local school corporations deal with unions in terms of dues is if they make it a part of the contract with the teachers, uh, they agree to take so much out of each paycheck to support the, the union. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's a, a big deal. But I, I guess the, the influence of labor unions has changed dramatically. They, the, the most important lobbies in, in the legislature are certainly education is at the top of the list. That includes the colleges and universities who are well represented and have really bright people doing their, their lobbying. And the second, of course, are the, the two teacher unions, the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, and the IH, the Indiana, I can't get it right. Uh, anyway, the, the ISTA, Indiana State Teachers Association. And uh, uh, the other lobbyists who are fairly prominent uh, are realtors, uh, business community through the state chamber, uh, and local chambers, that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. Interesting.
So now moving on to, I guess, some more specific questions about uh, legislation and stuff you were involved with. Um, now, you served in the House from 1967 to 69, is that correct? Well, I served for two terms, yes. Yeah, okay. I participated in two legislative sessions, yep. 67 and 69, right. And then in the Senate, it was from, what was it, 72 to 80? Yes, that, that'd be right. See, I was elected to fill an unfilled seat when okay. W.W. Hill became head of the uh, Public Service Commission. Okay. So I was elected at the same time that Dick Luger was elected mayor to his second term. Okay. But during the 71 session, you just you weren't in the General Assembly? That, that's right. I, 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 okay. What it was, I ran for state treasurer. In 1970, okay, and, and lost, and so I was out of the legislature for that time. Got it. Okay, because I was going through that the Senate and House journals. I was wondering, like, where did you go? <laughs> you just, yeah, yes. that's where I went. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, doing some research, I saw a, a few different pieces of legislation that you sponsored. Um, which you know probably are not well known. I don't even know if you would even remember them, but I just thought they were kind of interesting and would like to learn more about them. This bill actually passed. It was about establishing bilingual and bicultural programs in 1976. Well, I don't remember much about the specific. Yeah. But I, 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 I've always been a, a, a believer in international trade and I guess globalism. Yeah. And I saw that kind of instruction is getting Hoosiers uh, acclimated and ready for the moment when uh, we became a bigger participant in the international world. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because, uh, you know, from my personal experience, I've traveled around quite a bit, and I think one thing a lot of foreigners are surprised by is, is you know, how many Americans don't speak a second language. Oh, um, yeah. So I was I was interested to learn more about that and yeah, um, but yeah, that's cool. Fact, that's interesting. I even won an award for that bill. Oh okay. Yeah, from a Democratic U.S. senator from Illinois. Interesting. It, yeah, I, it was for my support of intercultural understanding or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do remember that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Now you talked about the development of White River State Park as being, you know, something that you were big on. Um, so, were there any big pushback against developing that park, or the only pushback would, would be uh, the anti-Marion County sentiment out of the state? Okay, and 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 of course, uh, there was some pushback from a racial standpoint because. Uh, the park was located in a part of Indianapolis where uh, a, a number of homes and businesses had to be removed, etc. Okay. So there was some of that. Uh, but, of course, we and I saw it as a, uh, an opportunity. We, we had the White River running through the middle of downtown Indianapolis. And nobody paid any attention to it. So we decided we ought to have a park on the banks of the White River, and that's what, what we did. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, 
Another thing I saw was that you were a big proponent of state officials releasing full financial disclosures. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, uh, my that came from my early indoctrination in the legislature in which we tried very hard to know what the economic interests were of each other so that when we heard something from an individual legislator, we could see if they had a self-interest involved. Yeah. That's where it started. And, and, and then, of course, um, uh, when I ran for state office, I, I released financial statements and so forth. Nobody seemed to care much because at that time I didn't have much of a net worth and much of an income. So, you know. Yeah, was, sure. Were there any other different uh, types of sort of ethic-based legislation that you remember passing? Well, we, we did do some uh, changes in uh, what you could accept from lobbyists and all that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. And, and uh, that was part of what I call the, the revolution of, uh, uh, of 1969 70 and 71, when Otis Bowen was the Speaker of the House, he was very active uh, in the National Association of State Legislators. They had an active view that legislatures could become more influential and have more respect uh, if they were more transparent and responsible. And, and so out of that came the decision to move Indiana to annual terms of the legislature uh, one of the biggest deals was opening up the committee process. See, when I first served, a committee could hold a hearing on a bill, uh, listen to everybody on the, both sides, and then they could empty the room, and an executive session could vote on the bill. So the public didn't have any idea how you voted. And so you could vote for a bill or against a bill in committee and then vote the opposite way when it came out on the floor. Yeah, and I found that to be an appalling set of circumstances. So, yeah, we we supported those changes in rules. Those changes were all in the rules of the body, uh, rather than in legislation. Okay. So, what was the reason why you left the General Assembly? Well, because I I, I left to begin with to run for state treasurer, and then right. I left another time in order to run for lieutenant governor. Right, got it. Okay. And looking back now, overall, how would you summarize your time as a state legislator? Oh, well, this was great. It was great fun. It was a challenge every day to go down to the state house and uh, interact with your colleagues on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it, it, it was a an intellectual challenge and emotionally very satisfying, I'll say. Okay. Do you have a favorite story or anecdote from your time as a legislator? Oh, I could laughingly tell you. When I first got elected, one of the old wives' tales that they told to new legislators was that the lobbyists were always around and that if you wanted a bottle of booze, just leave your locker un unlocked and the lobbyists would put a bottle in it. <laughs> well, I tried that one time and what happened was whoever opened my locker stole my hat, but I never got a bottle of booze. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did you ever get your hat back? 
Nope. Oh my gosh. No, I never did, and it was an expensive hat back in those days. Yikes. Okay. Wow. Jeez. Um, what lessons, if any, did you learn from your experiences in legislator? Well, the biggest lesson is that uh, the world is full of a variety of different kinds of people. And sometimes you'd ask yourself, how did that person ever get elected? Yeah. And, and yet, once you got into it and began to analyze it and talk to them, you, you realized how they got elected. And uh, yeah. so it's a new appreciation for, for difference, I put it that way. Yeah. Would you say that, you know, generally speaking, most people in the General Assembly are, are pretty much just normal people that you could meet off the street? Is there anything that separates them from the general public? Or, Well, the main thing that separates them is you've got to have drive and ambition. Okay. You, you don't get there. Yeah. And, and so that separates them. Uh, <clears throat> intellectually, I found them to be, uh, uh, the legislature to be full of people from different levels of intelligence. Okay. Uh, you soon figured out who the really bright people were, and you learned to have a different kind of attitude about their opinions. Yeah. Uh, you also found out that there were people there uh, who were motivated to be there by some really important challenges that they faced in their day-to-day -day living. Yeah. And, and that was an important challenge as well. Uh, you know, there were there were farmers, doctors, and lots of lawyers and so forth in the process. Um, so it, it, you got to know these people. Uh, it, it is a very close relationship you have with legislators. Right. You sit with them daily. You are in committee meetings with them. You attended social events with them. May not be that way today, but it sure was true when I was there. So sure. Uh, some of the best friends I've ever had in this world were in the legislature. Uh, don't know that I had vicious enemies in the legislature. There's certainly varying degrees of respect, <laughs> but that's, that's the way it is in the real world. Yeah, okay. Did you have any regrets as a legislature? Yes, yeah, I, I once gave a speech uh, about that. Uh, there were three regrets that I could name. Uh, one is that I voted for the collective bargaining bill for uh, teachers. Uh, that was a big, big mistake. And I, I did that at the behest of Otis Bowen when he was elected governor. He asked me to support it, and I, I did. Uh, he, before he died, he even admitted to me that it was a big, a big mistake. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the, the second area I would suggest is you may find this to be funny or strange, but I voted to eliminate a number of patronage uh, programs. Okay. Uh, the largest one being the license branch system and, and the so-called 2% club, where uh, individuals who were employed by state or local government required to, and, and got their jobs on the recommendation of the political party, they were required to spend to contribute 2% of their paycheck each pay period to the party in power. Uh, now, you're going to say, well, those were evils. 
<clears throat> you may not say that, but I would suggest to you that that method of paying for and financing political parties was far less invasive and threatening to society than is the big money programs that we deal with now. Right. That's, that's much as opinion. I wrote a column for the Indianapolis Business Journal about it. I, I wrote regular columns for about eight years, and I remember writing one about that. Um, yeah. So you ask about mistakes. That that would be the second mistake. Uh, the third mistake I made is this. You may think this is strange, but during my tenure as a budget maker, uh, when we first got there in 1967, the universities and colleges got just one line item appropriation. That was for Indiana, Purdue, Ball State, Indiana State, and later on uh, Ivy Tech. Uh, that money was in one line item, and the presidents of the two big campuses, uh, Herman Wells in Bloomington and Fred Hubdy, in Lafayette, got together and decided which university got how much. Now, uh, I said that was not transparent enough. We ought to have individual line item appropriations. And I still say that's the way it ought to be. However, I had anticipated what was going to happen in the legislature when each location got specific amounts of money suddenly the legislators from those parts of the state conditioned their support of the state budget act on getting something for their district mm, okay and that's a kind of log rolling that had not occurred to me one of the reasons we have a proliferation of ivy tech campuses in indiana is that you in essence satisfied the local legislators need for a choice morsel to take home with him, uh, and we ended up with too many campuses, too much overhead, <clears throat> and the, the, while the log ruling program is common to the legislative process, I didn't anticipate what an evil it might be. Yeah. So th those are the three things I'd list. Okay. Now, you mentioned a little bit about sort of money and politics. Uh, how has the role of money in politics changed in your estimation? Well, the, the old line is money is the mother's milk of, of politics. And, and I guess I have to agree with that. It, it has a lot to do with your ability to get elected and to stay in office. Uh, yes, the amounts of money in politics today are obscene. Uh, that's my opinion. The, the important thing about all that money, however, is that there be total transparency about where it came from and who, who got it. And unfortunately, with the complex system of uh, financing political activity today, there's a huge amount of money that you can't trace back to where it came from. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a very unfortunate. As I said, the, the, the essence of this is not to curtail contributions, but rather to make sure that you can say for sure where it came from, who got the benefit of it. Yeah. Okay. And, and those are the kind of reforms that I'd like to see in, in that area. Uh, 
What advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Uh, learn to know your opponents. Make friends with people on the other side of the aisle and where possible, incorporate them into your decision-making and preferences. Okay. All right, so last few questions now. Uh, how has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? How has it changed? Well, when I first took office, uh, it would be described as a swing state and as it went Democratic and Republican in different elections. Uh, for the last several decades, it's become almost a universal, what we call red state, meaning it'll be Republican. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if we were the first state to announce a plurality for Donald Trump. In other words, I think he will win the the, the delegates uh, from Indiana, that is the electors. Uh, so that's changed. Become more conservative and more Republican. Yeah. Uh, the other things that have changed is that the dominance of manufacturing, while we still are the most, in, we have to say with the largest percent of our economy in manufacturing, uh, it, it's now roughly only about 25% of our employment used to be close to half. Uh, the importance of, of farming, uh, relatively speaking, is about the same, except that what's happened is there are far fewer farms than there used to be. Consolidation has taken place there. Uh, the other major change is the importance of labor unions in Indiana has de declined. <clears throat> and uh, it appears we'll stay that way, although there are some signs that uh, the organizing by labor unions will once again take a, a bigger role. Uh, I guess another thing I'd say is that Indiana had an absolute breakout period of time during the uh, moments in which the veterans came back from Second World War. Higher education became more important. The general level of education improved. Uh, today, we are, I won't say we're a backwater, but we're not a leader in terms of the percent of people who have college training and education, or even post-high school training of one kind or another. Yeah. And, and I'm hopeful when I was the president, the chairman of the board of Lumina Foundation, we adopted this goal of tremendously increasing the percent of the population that has post-high school credentials. And uh, uh, we're making some progress, but we still got a long, long way to go. Yeah. Okay. The, those are the changes I I list. Uh, the uh, what I've left out here. Uh, well, the other thing, of course, is that influence of social issues in politics has come back, not come back, but become more dominant than it was in the past. But, uh, yeah, okay. I guess, I guess those are the things I'd list. I mentioned the labor union decline. I mentioned the decline in the number of people who work in manufacturing. Uh, 
talked about the consolidation of the farming community. Um, I don't know what else I admit. I think those are the main. Well, I mentioned the change in the political parties. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Um, what, if any, enduring qualities do Hoosers still have or hold dear? Well, the use of the word enduring would suggest you're talking about positive things. Well, you can say negative as well if you want. (laughs) All right, well, I'll put put it this way. In Indiana, we still are reluctant to argue and debate in person. Uh, That's very common on the East Coast and the West Coast of people scream and yell at each other about differences of opinion. In Indiana, that's not considered good manners in lots of cases. Uh, I think it's unfortunate. We need to get our political differences out on the table more. Uh, and, and the funny thing about this is it doesn't keep us from saying nasty things about other people behind their backs. Right. But it, 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 it's unfortunate in my mind that we can't have a genuine difference of opinion and still like each other. And, and I think that's a real problem. I, I'm encountering that now. I, I, you may guess as to my decision to support the, the Democrat for president this year. Yeah. I, I have gotten some hate mail and things of that kind. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. It's, it is pretty unfortunate just how personally everyone has to take every difference. Um, yeah. Uh, what do you want Hoosers to know about their role and relation to the function of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, there, of course, is a remarkable deficit in public knowledge about the process, who the people are, what they stand for, etc. Um, there's a, a good deal of that at the federal level, too. It's more pronounced at the state level. Um, so I guess where I am on this is that it takes time and effort to know what's going on. Informed citizens were part of the basic idea of the founding fathers. And, and, and yet, uh, the number of citizens who are really informed is relatively small as a percent of the population. So, uh, you know, anything can be done to increase the understanding of our system. See, I don't think Donald Trump understands checks and balances. Mm-hmm. If, if he did, he would have more respect for the legislative branch. And that's part and parcel of what the founding fathers had in mind, was co-equal branches of government. And uh, he just doesn't seem to get it in that respect. Right. Uh, and, and, and that is very important in my opinion uh, if you read the Federalist Papers which I have uh, th- th- there's a good deal of, of, of debate and discussion about uh, the checks and balances uh, the, the role of the minority in a population and in a legislative body uh, those concepts are very important in other words the founding fathers did not believe in mob rule uh, the closest they came to it were in the uh, early populations that settled on the East Coast, and the, the, they 
they set up what were called town meetings, and these were not entities that were enshrined in legislation, but they were meetings that took place in these communities where they actually made decisions about what they wanted to do. And when you think about it, it's kind of amazing that these people gathered together and voluntarily agreed to do what, how, how the vote came out. I mean, that, that was a it's an amazing concept. Yeah. And 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 so uh, what we got now is a situation where often we're not satisfied with the outcome of the vote and decide we're going to do everything we can in our power to change it at the next election. Now, I understand that motivation, mm-hmm. but I think the process is one in which uh, compromise the checks and balances. It seems to me give us an outcome that's not not too bad over the history of the country. Right. Uh, so, and, and I, you know, I, I say it can't be a really good politician unless you know how to compromise. Yeah. And 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 so, if I had to give advice, as you asked earlier, to the incoming legislator, it'd be reach out to your opponents but also learn that uh, the way you get things done is to compromise. I mean, I, I remember our big, my first big legislative defeat, you could have called it the fact we didn't get the new university created for the city of Indianapolis. But what we did do was we forced the, unit, the, the leadership of IU and Purdue to execute a merger so that IUPUI developed. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, what happened was that they couldn't agree on what to call it. They insisted that each of their names ought to be in the title, which became funny because it's Indiana University and Purdue University at Indianapolis. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the name was often jokingly referred to as Ooey Pooey. And, <laughs> and I guess I'd have to say that that disagreement is pretty typical. Uh, and, and, of course, our goal was to call it the University of Indianapolis. And, and that was fine until Eugene Cease, the president of, of what is now the University of Indianapolis, which at that time was called the Indiana Central, uh, he changed the name and co-opted it or opted it out, out of the possibilities. So now the University of Indianapolis is a private university on the southern side of Indianapolis. But... Uh, I, I guess what I'm, I'm saying there is that compromise gets things done. Being willing to take half or part of a loaf rather than no loaf is a better way to go. Yeah. So when it comes to like you know general hoosers of the public, um, would you say that there are too many of them are just kind of complacent to what's going on in government and just for whatever reason? you know, don't want to be a part of it? Well, people want to be a part of it when it affects their, their daily lives. Okay. That's to be expected. Uh, if you're a business person, uh, you're aware of the fact that what the legislature does and the federal government does affects your business and you better watch it and be concerned about it. Yeah. I, I, I'm always kind of amazed at, um, if you look at, the, at history, first of all, you look at George Washington, and, and Washington said, 
every responsible citizen has a responsibility to be involved in government at one time or another. And, and Washington actually could have been elected as the emperor, or whatever you want to call it, of the United States, that he wanted to be because he was so popular <coughs> after the revolution. But what did he do? He said, I've had enough. I'm going home to Mount Vernon and enjoy my <coughs> estate, my farm, and my family. <coughs> and, and that, of course, was a view of government that's far different we have today. Now, a, another good example of that was Booth Tarkington, maybe the foremost man of letters to come out of the state of Indiana, won two Pulitzer Prizes. And he said, well, I'm an author, yes, but I'm also a citizen. Mm-hmm. And so he volunteered to run for the legislature and actually served one term in the House. Yeah. Few people know that. But but that's an example of, of being willing to step aside from your your ongoing career and your biggest accomplishment to take part in, in, in government. Yeah. Uh, there are other examples of this, but the, those two are, in my mind, the, the classics. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything that you want to mention that I didn't ask about? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> that, 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 that every reporter who's ever interviewed me has always asked that question at the end of the interview, yeah. hoping that you may commit yourself to something he didn't know about. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not worried about that with, with you, because yeah. this is a, yeah. a, a piece of history for the for the decades that, that follow. And I, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess what I'd say to you is I'm, I'm grateful you decided to interview me, and uh, uh, I, it has been a wonderful journey for me. I've enjoyed each and every moment of it, and uh, uh, even my wife will say today she enjoyed each and every moment of it. So uh, I don't have anything to answer. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, I mean, thank you so much for taking a part in this project um you know it should be a a useful tool for whoever wants to use in the future and hopefully uh it can also serve as a tool to help get people maybe more interested in state politics that's another goal of the project is to try to find ways to utilize these interviews um for maybe implementing them into school curriculum to study and um there's a lot of ideas that we're thinking about to try to uh, help make the public a little bit more interested in state politics. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of this. So, Well, I appreciate that, too. I, I have to say, my book, uh, the Historical Society decided to, to publish it, for which I'm grateful. And it, it is history from 1960, essentially, to the present as seen through my, my eyes. Yeah. And, uh, so there's, there's all the stuff I've told you and a lot more are, are, are in and in. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, definitely something I'll be interested in checking out to learn more. So. Okay, great. All right, well. Okay. Okay, perfect. I appreciate it. All right, hope you have a good rest of your day and um, uh, take care. So. Very nice talking to you. All right, bye-bye.